A reading from Ephesians. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The word of the Lord. Exploring the issue of marriage under the rubric of modern family. This morning will be the last on marriage. We'll start talking about uh, uh, parenting next week. Uh, but for the last three weeks, we focus in on the issue of marriage. Uh, Larry talked about the purpose of marriage the first week, that it is for our good and uh, to portray, portray the gospel. And then last week he talked about the power in our marriage of how we we can live that out. This morning, I want to talk about gender and how that plays out into our marriages. And I want us to spend some time in Ephesians chapter 5 that was read this morning. Um, I, I'm not going to address the issue of gender in terms of the homosexuality debate and gay marriage. Uh, we're going to do one message at the end of the series on sexuality, and I'll, I'll try to deal with some of that there. But this morning, I just want to assume a, a biblical uh, perspective on marriage between a, husband, a man and a woman and talk about how that plays out, their gender plays out in that relationship. I realize that Ephesians chapter 5 and this whole notion of men loving their wives and wives submitting to their husbands is um, a frustrating message, uh, something that oftentimes is unpopular in our culture. Um, it's challenging, actually, both to men and women. I was at a party last night, and uh, the gal I was talking to knew I was preaching on this passage, and she said to me, you, oh, you guys love that, that passage, don't you? You know, we have to obey. And, and uh, I thought, well, it doesn't say obey, it says submit. But what I said to her, I said, you know, actually, I think you got the easier end of the, the, the stick there. All you have to do is submit. Us guys, we got to go die, Okay. That's what the passage says. We're to sacrifice ourselves like Jesus. So uh, maybe it's as frustrating to men as well. But I, I talk to women about this passage and I hear them say words like it makes me anxious or it makes me guilty or it makes me afraid. Um, makes some women feel like if they, they wonder if God really likes them all that much if that's how he wants them to be treated. They're, they're scared that if they do this, this whole thing of submission... There'll be a loss of self, a loss of self-respect, a loss of identity. And, and bottom line, for a lot of women, I, I get that it just seems unfair. I, I mean, it just seems unfair. 
but for men, it, it's not easy as well because to take this passage seriously, it seems a bit unrealistic to love your wife like Christ loved the church self-sacrificially, to be willing to lay down your life, uh, not in a grand gesture, right? We all think we would do that. I'm not sure we would. All, not in a grand ju- ju- uh, gesture, but in the... the everyday details of life, you know, doing the dirty dishes, taking out the garbage, changing the dirty diapers. What would that look like for us if we really loved our wives as Christ loved the church? And, and who, who, who in here is doing that? I mean, can do that. I mean, the, that's a high bar. So I just want to say this, this is a frustrating passage for, for both sides. And I'm a little apprehensive to talk about it, but I think it's important um, I think the instructions in this passage are are relatively clear. Um, And and more than than that, I think that they're coming from the one who designed the marriage relationship. And I think if we understand them, they're a bit radical and subversive. But if we understand them and can apply them properly, I, I think they really are instructions that will help us have better marriages. I mean, after all, God is the one who designed this thing, marriage. He knows what the fabric is. He he designed us as men and women. He knows how this thing is supposed to work. And we want to say outside, no, God, I think you got it wrong. Well, maybe he didn't. And maybe it's to our benefit to, to wrestle through to figure out how to live this out well. I believe... Um, that the differences between men and women will play are unavoidable, in a sense, in every marriage, and how you manage them is key. So it's a challenge. So what I want to do this morning is I want to go back into the book of Genesis and, and look at how God really originally created men and women. We'll talk a moment about how that has been corrupted. And then I want to approach Ephesians within that broader context of an understanding of gender because I think that will be helpful. So, if you could open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look real quickly at 126. Um, then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind. You could also translate that humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. It's interesting that the first time humanity is mentioned in the scripture, uh, humanity or humankind is identified as both male and female um, from the start. This notion of differentiation between male and female is not something that God thought about later. It's at the very core. And that means that gender is at the very core of our identity. Um, It's deep inside us, whether we're male or female. um, You know, in every cell of our body, it's stamped either XX or XY. It's part of our core identity. And I think he's saying that men and women are distinct. They're different. Um, And that difference, rather than being minimized and trying to make everybody neuter, which sometimes our culture does, they want to say, you know, men and women, the only difference is biological, nothing else. That's just not true. It is biological, but it, it seeps into every 
other aspect of our personality and how we see the world, our temperament, our outlook, how we approach things, how we lead, how we make decisions. It's part of the fabric of who we are. And rather than playing that down, I think it's something that should be celebrated. Uh, I mean, God loves diversity, and I think he loves the gender diversity uh, uh, between men and women. Um, He made us unique, and that uniqueness needs to be uh, um, embraced. Um, But what's interesting, even though men and women are different, he makes it very clear that they're not unequal. In in fact, he makes it very clear that there's an equality between the gender. He's very clear to point out that both men and women are created in the image of God, and fundamentally, that's where our value comes, right? Not by what we do, not by what we accomplish. Our value resides in the fact that we're created in the image of God. That what infuses us with, with, with value. And that's true for men, and it's true for women. So that's where our value is found. Um, and God says that both men and women are to exercise dominion over the world and to be fruitful and multiply. I don't know if you figured this out, but that's going to take both men and women to accomplish that agenda. So we're both critical and equal before God. So let let me just make it very clear. Women are as valuable and important, gifted and talented and as necessary as men. They are not second-class citizens. They are not objects to be gawked at. They are not to be used or abused or mistreated. Uh, They are never possessions. They are not less intelligent. Um, They are like men created in God's image, and we need to treat them, and our culture needs to treat them accordingly. And we get that all twisted up in, in our culture, how we treat women. And, and honestly, American culture is a little better in some ways than other cultures, but around the world, women are oftentimes oppressed and mistreated. Uh, if you want to read about that, pick up a book called Half the Sky, and it will just, I, when I read it, it made me viscerally angry. Uh, um, at what our world has done to so many women. So, but that is counter to God's intent. So, um, both are created in the image of God and that gender diversity is essential and they're equal. And third, there, there is an interdependence between men and women, the genders. Genesis 2.18 um, talks about this. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Um, That is the first time that God looks on his creation and sees something that is not perfect, not the way he wants it to be, the aloneness uh, of the man. So he says, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. Um, A couple things to note about this. One, it's very clear in the creation account that Adam is created first, and that doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But in the scriptures, the priority of of creation matters. In fact, Paul is going to come back to that and talk about one of the reasons women are to submit to their husband and husband's love is is that the man is the head. And he's talking back to this, this source of creation. He was created first. You also see, so there's an implied authority that's going to manifest itself in the marriage relationship. You also see it in the fact that Adam is the one naming. And when you name something, you're giving order to it. You're, you're functioning in this authoritative position because you're designating where things fit. And Adam is the one who names woman. 
and later on specifically names her Eve. So there's this exercise of authority that indicates some structure in the nature of the relationship. But then he says he's going to make women, and she is a helper. And that word helper is the Hebrew word ezer. It literally means to protect or to surround. Helper is not a, a, the best translation because when we think of somebody getting help, we think that uh, you're doing this task and somebody kind of helps you. But you could have done the task on your own. You didn't really need that help. That's not the idea here. Ezer is oftentimes used of God coming to the rescue and oftentimes used of a military uh, campaign where, where you get reinforcements. And the notion is, is that you're doing something and you can't accomplish it on your own. You need help to get it done. And that's what the woman is designed for, to come along and help us accomplish what, what uh, God wants us to accomplish. We can't do it on our own. We need the help. So there's an interdependence between uh, the man and the woman. And then he says, this woman is suitable... And again, it's not a very good translation, but literally the, the phrase means like opposite him. Uh, like opposite him. In other words, the woman is like the man in a lot of ways, but on the other hand, she's opposite him in a lot of ways. It's kind of like there are two pieces of the puzzle, right? And the two pieces fit together, and they're designed to fit together, but they're very different, okay? That's the genders. Men and women are very different, very distinct, but there's an interdependence and those distinctives play in with each other. Now here's what's fascinating to me. Remember, he said that God created them in his image, male and female, and the implication is you don't really see the true nature of God until you see both male and female. It takes both male and female to reflect the ultimate nature of the image of God. It's kind of like you have a piece of aluminum, you know, that's crinkled, and you, you look in that, and you kind of get a distorted image of what, uh, a, a distorted reflection, or you have a piece of glass, and you can see an image in the glass that's reflected, but it, it's kind of shadowy, but if you take the aluminum foil and the, the glass and put it together, you create a mirror, and when you have them both together, then you get a, a great image uh, of the person staring into the mirror. And what God is saying is, look, if you really want to know what God is like, you need both men and women, you need both genders uh, to see what that is like because uh, one gender only gives you a piece of the image of God. You need, you need both to understand the nature of God because God is both. I don't think we, typically, think we typically see God in male terms, but God is both genders, uh, um, Right? That's the implication. If, if the female is created in his image, then the female is part of God's image. So God has both uh, pieces of gender in who he is, not just one. Then we get, that's creation, then we get to the fall. And what happens to the genders and the relationship between the, the genders at the fall is kind of interesting. Both men and women sin against God and they're expelled from the garden. And immediately there's this catastrophic change in the unity between the man and the woman. They, they start blaming each other. They start pointing fingers at each other. You know, he did it. She told me. She gave me that blah, blah, accusing. And it's fascinating that when you go down and t look at the consequences that come out of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, God is talking to the woman and he says this, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. 
I like how Kathy Keller writes about this. She says, the woman remains dependent and desirous of her husband, but it turns into an idolatrous desire, and his protection and love become a selfish lust and exploitation. At the fall, that relationship between the genders is broken and distorted. And as a result, men in mass have a tendency to exploit or oppress women. And women have a tendency to over-desire the position of a man in their life. And the relationship gets broken. And that plays in history and in our marriages and in our cultures. Something's wrong. Okay, with all that as background, turn with me to, to Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to talk about how gender plays out in the relationship of marriage. Now, if you remember back to Larry's messages, it, this whole passage in context goes back to where, where, where Paul is saying we should be filled with the Spirit. And one of the manifestations of us being filled with the Spirit is how we relate or operate in our marriages in, in chapter 5. So he begins Ephesians 5.21. He says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's kind of the overarching notion. And this one another means uh, it's a reciprocal pronoun. So there's a sense in which everybody who's a believer who claims to know Jesus submits to everyone else. And they do it because they're in relationship to Christ. So there's this mutuality that plays between all of us. Okay? We submit. And I like to think about it as, as simply deferring to the interests of others. Looking out for the interests of others. So, so it's like you're driving down a road and you come to this one lane bridge. Um, and, and going into the one lane bridge, you see a sign that says yield. Right? You look and nobody's coming. And you get to the other end and you look back and you see a sign for the people coming the other way that says yield. That's how life is to be amongst believers. We're both to yield. We're both to defer. We're both to think of others as more important than other people as more important than ourselves. And the reason you have yield signs at both sides of the bridge if it's one lane is you want to avoid a head-on collision. (laughs) In life, we're to submit one to another to to avoid relational head-on collisions. All right? So that covers this whole passage. And some people want to say, well, it's mutual submission. So what that really means is there's no role differentiation in marriage. Both husbands are to submit to their wives and wives are to submit to their husbands. And that's how it's to to function. And some people label that egalitarian. I, I don't think that's what Paul is arguing for here. If he's just saying everybody submits to everybody else and that's how it works in marriage, then he would stop there. I think what he's saying is, in general, we're to submit to one another, but it works itself out differently in different relationships. So he says, wives, submit to your husbands, husbands, love your wives. And then he says, children, submit to your parents, right? If mutual submission was meant both sides submit to each other, he would say, and children, submit to your parents, and parents submit to your children. And he doesn't. So it plays out differently. And in the marital relationship, it, it, it plays out with some structure. Okay. So he speaks to wives first, and he says to the wives, verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit their husbands in everything. 
The, the Greek word here for submit simply means, um, it's one word that means under and another word that means to arrange. So you put the two words together and it has the notion uh, of arranging under something, okay? And, and basically he's just saying, look, when you come to marriage, there is an order, a hierarchy in marriage. Um, and wives are to place themselves into that order under their husband. In, in other words, Women in marriage are to defer to their husbands. That plays itself out in different ways of thinking about this. It doesn't mean that all through life in every decision, a woman just defers to her husband. It just means, I, I was thinking about this with Barb and I, how do we play this out? Most of the time, uh, we make mutual consensus decisions, okay? Most of the time, because it's, it's not attention. But there are those moments where we can't navigate what we ought to do. And I think it's where, in those moments, this passage comes to play because what it's saying to the wife is, okay, defer to your husband's leadership. And remember, that's happening in the context of a husband who is supposed to be loving you sacrificially. And it's the fact that he's loving you sacrificially that helps you defer. Go ahead and put yourself under his leadership. Submit. Now, a couple things to note about this. The command is not for women in general to defer to all men. The command is for a wife to defer to her husband, submit to her husband. Uh, the notion that all women are submit to all men is absurd. Paul is saying, look, within this protective covenant of marriage, it's where this this role differentiation around gender is to play itself out. It's, th this passage has nothing to do with whether a woman can lead a corporation or be president of the United States. Or, it's not talking about that. It's talking about within the covenant of marriage, there is a, a difference of role. And the second thing to note is that a woman's submission is voluntary. This, this particular verb is a passive or a middle verb, which means he's not saying by implication... Men, rule your wives. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he never says that. He says, men, love your wives. Uh, women, you, voluntary, you voluntarily submit. It's, your, you, it's something you do out of your choice. And then he explains what that looks like. Uh, you are to submit as to the Lord. In other words, he's given us a model. If you want to know what submission looks like, it looks like your relationship with God. What happens when you submit to God is you bend your will to his. And he's saying there are moments in marriage where a wife bends her will to the will of her husband. And that's part of the fabric of how God created marriage to work. So the question becomes, why? That doesn't seem very fair. And Paul says the reason why is because the husband is the head of the wife. Now remember, he's going all the way back to creation. What he's saying, look, in the very fabric of creation of how God created the genders, there is something a structure that's created, a bit of a hierarchy, and the way that plays out in marriage, because the husband is the head or the leader, the wife has to defer at times. Um, now, there's a lot of debate around this word head. It's actually the Greek word kephale, and some people want to say, well, it means source, and other people want to say, no, it means rank and authority. 
And I don't think however you play that word out, I think if you do the studies, it comes out as rank and authority is the most common meaning. But even if you say it's source, there is a sense that the source of something becomes authoritative. If I write a poem and you're debating what the meaning of the poem is, and I'm the author of the poem, guess what? I get to tell you what the meaning of the poem is because I wrote it, all right? So even if it's a source, our word authority, right, is author, <laughs> the source has a sense of authority in the relationship. So Paul is appealing to that. Um, but remember, he's saying that this issue of submission, and later on he, he, he gets to the attitude behind it of respect, takes, takes place in this, this structured relationship where, where he has radically redefined the husband's responsibility. Because it's not a responsibility to rule, but it's a responsibility uh, to, to love. Now, here's the problem in our culture. We see submission typically as something that is very demeaning, something that's devaluing. Um, we think in our culture that submission always implies inferiority. And, and part of the reason for this is because we live in a culture where our highest values are freedom and equality. And in our culture, those notions of freedom and equality get wrapped up with our understanding of the Bible. But the value of equality and freedom really doesn't come out of Scripture as much as it comes out of the Enlightenment. I don't think God is half as concerned about our personal freedom <laughs> and our equality, and that we're treated fair and equal. I don't think he, he's half concerned about that as much as we are. Because you sure don't see, for him, our relationship with Christ transcends all of that. We find freedom in him, and our quality is rooted in our image of God. So, so it almost makes us independent of how we're treated. But here's what happens. When Jesus comes on the scene, and this is what I think we need to wrestle with when we think of submission, he, he subverts the notion of submission so that because of what he's done, you can't think of submission as de demeaning. But Jesus actually shows us submission as a way to glory. You say, Nick, what are you talking about? Well, you go to Philippians chapter 2, and Philippians chapter 2 is what we call the kenosis passage. It's, it, it's actually a hymn, and it talks about Jesus becoming flesh. And it talks about him becoming obedient to the Father's will to the point that he will die to save humankind. And in that, what is happening is Jesus is submitting himself. And because of his submission, his humility, him lowering himself, him putting himself under God's rule and obedience, what does God do? God magnifies and glorifies him. And suddenly Jesus is saying, look, submission isn't demeaning. It's a, a, a way to glorification. You see, in our culture, we think that value is linked with function and that if you are in a hierarchy where you put yourself under somebody else and it's not based on your function, then it must devalue you, all right? That's not true. You can submit to authorities or submit to your husband or submit to God and it doesn't devalue at all. In fact, it may enhance your value before God. You know where you see this uh, played out? 
and, and it's this notion that your value and your function are, are different things, is in the very Trinity itself. In the Trinity, Jesus submits to the Father. And the Father loves the Son. Now think about this. Is Jesus in, of any less value than the Father? No. Is Jesus any less capable than the Father? No, he's God. He's not. <laughs> They're equal in capability. So Jesus' submission isn't based on his talent, his inferiority, his, his ability. It's simply based on his role and what is going to bring the most glory to God as a whole. And what you get in the Trinity is a dance between God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and the Son is submitting to the Father, and the Father is leading and glorifying the Son. And there's this spectacular dance going on. And what, that, that's where it gets to our marriage, because in our marriages, the world is supposed to see how we function in our roles and get a glimpse of what is going on inside the dance of the Trinity. No, that's really theological, but it has huge impact on us to think differently about our relationships in the marriage. So, Kathy Keller writes this, and I think she nails it. This is a, um, their book on marriage. If you haven't read that, you want to grab it. It's great. She writes this. She says, The relationship of the father and the son is a pattern for the relationship of husband to wife. The son submits to the father's headship with free, voluntary, and joyful eagerness, not out of coercion or inferiority. Father's headship is acknowledged in reciprocal delight, respect, and love. There is no inequality of ability or dignity. They are differently gendered to reflect this life within the Trinity. Male and female are invited to mirror and reflect the dance of the Trinity. Loving, self-sacrificing authority and loving, courageous submission. The son takes a subordinate role, and in that moment he shows not his weakness, but his greatness. So, when Barb, my wife, submits to my leadership, it's not demeaning to her. In fact, she's showing forth the glory of God in that. And my responsibility then is to love her sacrificially so that her deferring to my leadership isn't a burden, doesn't take away her self-respect, doesn't take away... Her, her dignity. So, okay, that's really abstract, Nick. What does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean for me to submit to my husband? Um, it does not mean that you put uh, your husband in the place of Christ in your life. Whether you realize this or not, when you stand before God at the end, you will stand there not in the shadow of your husband if you're a woman and you're married. You're going to stand there in front of him on you, based on yourself, before him yourself, not, not in the shadow of your husband. It also doesn't mean that if you're a wife, you give up efforts to influence or guide your husband. Um, this, this passage does not uh, imply that one is powerful and the other powerless in the relationship. This is not a power relationship. It's a relationship of equals. And it doesn't mean unilateral decision-making. Uh, that the husband is just supposed to make the decisions and the wife isn't to speak into those. That, that misses the point. If we understand that gender is different and distinctive, then a smart husband is going to be listening to his wife because he understands she's intelligent, she's insightful, she has a different perspective, and, uh, God, he needs that 
to help make decisions. And the truth is, most of those times, those decisions are going to be consensus decisions. I was trying to think, when, when have I pulled the, the leadership card in, in our marriage? And man, they are few and far between. And, and they don't happen without a lot of discussion and, and wrestling. Um, you know, a wife's submission is not permission for a husband to domineer. And it also doesn't mean that a woman gives in to every demand of her husband. You serve a higher authority, right? And if your husband asks you to do something illegal or immoral, you tell him, no. Just a pastoral note here. If there is physical or emotional abuse, you need to have zero tolerance as a woman for that. Um, Tell somebody and get out. There is nothing in this passage that argues that it's biblical for you to submit to the abusive behavior of a husband. That is not what this passage is talking about. Uh, um, You're not being biblical. You're not being godly. You're not being self-sacrificing to allow someone to abuse you. The other thing is submission doesn't mean a strict role definition of how this plays out in different cultures and different people. We, we kind of play that out, you know, while the woman has to stay home and the man has to work. Well, in this society, that wasn't the case. Both men and women worked because they were so intent on survival, you know. And we think, well, the woman has to cook and the man has to mow the, the lawn and he has to do the finances. And that, that's just... That's hogwash. It's not what this passage is teaching. I mean, if, if a woman is better at finances and more detail, have her do the books. And if you're a better cook, cook the meals. You'll like them a lot more. <laughs> you know? And it, it, <laughs> if she's more mechanical, let her fit the, fix the car. And if you've got a flair for design and color, you know, design the house. And I, yeah. That's not what this is talking about. You have to work those things out. Just two more notes. And I want to talk about husbands in relationship to this submission thing. Guys, it is not your responsibility uh, to make your wife submit. And if you are talking to your wife about her lack of submission, you have missed the boat. All right? The, the point is your responsibility is to love and to love in such a way that you create trust. And when you love and create trust and you're so self-sacrificial and so, so oriented on her needs and what she's about and what God's doing in her life, you know what's going to happen? It's going to be easy for her to submit. But you don't twist her arm. You have to earn the respect. Not to, to rule your wife. And maybe, you have to look at this, guys, maybe your wife has trouble submitting um, because you don't lead well. Maybe you don't lead at all. You you know, she can't follow because you're not going anywhere. You abdicate. You don't help with the kids. You don't take any spiritual leadership in the home. You don't provide input or direction. You just abdicate. You have, it's like you have a big sign around your neck that says non-verbally, I'm lost don't follow me. You withdraw, you shut up, you are emotionally absent. You're not there. You're not heard. How does anybody follow that? 
Or maybe it's the way you lead. Maybe it's that you're domineering and dictatorial and demeaning because you don't understand your responsibility to be considerate and loving. Guys, your marriage is not about you and structuring your life around you so you're comfortable and happy. And if you think that's your position in the family, you are poorly mistaken and don't have a clue about what your responsibilities are in light of this passage. So let's talk about that. He's talked to wives, now he talks to husbands. And he says in Ephesians 5, 27, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. (laughs) You know what's funny about this passage? We come to it and we think what's scandalous is that he would tell wives to submit. In Paul's day, they didn't give a second thought about that. That was obvious, right? They thought it was scandalous that you would ask a husband to love his wife. Wives were possessions. You didn't have to worry about you did, they, they were chattel. They, you did with your wife with whatever you like. You want me to love my wife? Paul, are you nuts? That's what was scandalous. Yeah, he wants you to love your wife. And not only love your wife, but love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave gave himself up for her. Um, We're so familiar with this passage that doesn't catch us by surprise. It doesn't seem to us subversive and, and radical. But it is. Paul is following Jesus in turning upside down the relationships of husband and wives in that day. Because nobody had an idea what it meant to love your wives, especially to the point where you'd lay down your life for them. You see, guys, you, you have a leadership role in your family. That's by design and part of the gender. But understand what Jesus even does to the nature of leadership. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45 says this. Jesus His disciples have been arguing about who's greater and where they're going to sit and who's going to sit on the throne. So Jesus comes back and says to them, Jesus calls them together and says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. That's the world standard of leadership, right? You use leadership as a way to get perks and prestige and status. Verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And we came up with this notion of servant leadership. So we're supposed to be leaders, but we're supposed to use our leadership to serve. But he gets even more radical than that. Look at verse 44. He says, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now, it's one thing to be a servant. It's another thing to be a slave. You see, you could be a servant and still have some prestige and status and position. But if you're a slave, you're owned by somebody else. You have no prestige, no status, no position. <laughs> and he's saying, oh, by the way, that's, that's what we are. We're slaves of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we come to marriage and we think, okay, I'm supposed to be the leader in the home, but I'm a good guy, I'll be a servant leader. Well, that's great. But I think Paul is challenging us to something even greater. The identification that we, of who we are isn't that we're a leader and we lead by serving. I think what he's saying is, no, understand, you're a slave. And you, the way you slave is by leading. And here's the difference. If I'm a leader and I lead by serving, then as a leader, I still get the perks and the status and the prestige and the position. 
But if I understand myself as a slave, then it's not about me at all. It's not about the perks, the privileges, and the position. And the way I slave is lead. And the way I lead is to love. And suddenly, it changes the whole dynamic in the family. Because now it's not about your position or your status or what you want. It's about serving the other, embracing the other. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like how Jesus loved us. How did Jesus love us? (laughs) By dying for us. It's like there are no holds barred. In fact, he gives them two analogies. He says, if you want to understand what it means to love your wife, look at Jesus, how he loved the church, and then look at how you treat your own body. How do you treat your own body? Well, I take pretty good care of my body. I feed it, I eat it, I sleep it. Right? I do a lot of good things for my body. You do too. And he said, okay, you understand what it means to love something. You love yourself. You know what that looks like. Now, that's how you treat your wife. That means your love is unconditional because Jesus' love was conditional, was unconditional. Let me play that. that. That means your love isn't conditioned upon how attractive your wife is. You enter into this covenant of marriage. Whether they get fat or skinny or somewhere in between, your love is the same. Your love I- isn't conditioned upon how moody or unmoody she is. You know, what... what He's saying, look, just don't love her when she's easy to love. Because in the marriage, people aren't very often easily to love, right? Love them unconditionally. Whether she burns dinner or doesn't or is there when you, you know, all that stuff, we we make our love conditional in marriage more easily than any place else. So you love unconditionally. Second, you love with your will. And Larry brought this home really well last night that love ultimately is not an emotion, it's a decision. And it's nice when the emotion comes along with the decision, but the emotion is not determinative of your love. Love is always something you choose to do. And once you've made this commitment of marriage, you have said by your vows, I'm choosing to love you. And what that means, it makes your love dependent on you, not on them. And we always turn that around. We say, well, I'll love you if you become lovable. You smell good and look good and do what I want you to do. And then we turn that around and we think they'll love us if we become lovable, you know, if we're funny and intelligent and make lots of... In marriage, that's all set aside. You choose to love, and your love's dependent on you. You don't fall out of love. You choose not to love. And Paul is saying, that's not an option. Because ultimately, he's saying, love is sacrificial. To what extent did Jesus love us to the ultimate extent. And I think in marriage what we want to do is put some boundaries. I'll love you if 
We play that out subtly. We kind of set up expectations of how our spouse should respond, and then they don't meet him. We get disappointed, so we kind of withdraw, and we withhold our love. And This does away with that whole notion. Your whole response in marriage, guys, is to love your wife and to love her sacrificially, to put aside your own interests and become concerned about hers. I just got to be honest, guys, if you do that, there's not a woman in the world that I've ever met would have trouble deferring to your leadership. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. So I have two assignments for you this morning. Guys, what I want you to do is go home and read 1 Corinthians and I want you to put your name in there for love. First Corinthians is the love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Put your name there. So Nick is patient. And then I want you to apply it to your wife. So Nick is patient with Barb. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> Nick is kind to Barb. You, you can see where this is going. It's a great exercise. Because it puts flesh on what it means to love your wife. Okay, women, I want you to go home and wrestle with this question. What would it really like, look like if you respected and deferred to the leadership of your husband? Would it really be that bad? Two assignments. Okay, I'd like you to stand. I'm going to pray. I'm sorry that we went over. I'd like to pray for both the men and then... I pray for the women and then the men this morning. So if you'd bow your heads with me. Father, I want to thank you for every woman in this room. I want to thank you for their hearts. And I pray that you might bless them right now. I pray that you would fill them with your peace and a passion for your kingdom. And I pray that they would have a sense of your love. I pray that they would feel confident and worthy and understand in the depths of their souls how valuable they are uh, um, to you. I pray, Lord, that they would grow closer to you every day, that they would seek after you, that they would live lives that show forth the example of Christ. May you give them the courage to walk in integrity. May you give them the ability to embrace their femininity. Lord, help them to have the confidence to serve you boldly and to seek your kingdom first. And Father, if they're married, help them fulfill their role and do it with respect. And just ask, Lord, that they'd find joy in that. Father, I pray for the the men in this room. Um, Father, I help, pray that you'd help them understand what it truly means to be a man, that the ultimate measure is how well they love. I pray that you'd give us men the ability to do that well as we pursue you and your kingdom. Father, those who are married, give them the strength to love their li- wives well so that their wives know it and feel it and experience it. And then, Lord, make their purpose uh, in your kingdom so crystal clear that they have a direction, that they lead, 
that they pursue hard after you. Father, help us as a church to have great marriages that show forth your gospel and your kingdom in the dance of the Trinity. We ask this in Christ's name.